Welcome to another George Consortium COVID-19 Law and Policy Briefing, presented by our colleagues around the country in association with Public Health Watch at Northeastern University and the Center for Public Health Law Research at Temple University. We're here to provide expert legal analysis during the pandemic and hopefully to answer some of your questions. I'm Nicholas Terry, a professor at Indiana University School of Law. Joining me today are Professor Wendy Parmet from Northeastern University School of Law and Professor Elizabeth Weeks from the University of Georgia School of Law. We'll be taking questions towards the end of the broadcast, so please ask them at PHLAWWatch with the hashtag COVIDLawBriefing. So to frame today's discussion, I want to begin with a quote from Washington Governor Jay Inslee uh, on this week's Meet the Press, referring to a statement by President Trump that the federal government is a backup. Isley said, can you imagine if Franklin Roosevelt said that, said that I'll be right behind you, Connecticut. Good luck building those battleships. So I think we need to talk about what our legal system has to say about who is the starter here and who is the backup. And and that means talking about federalism. So let's start by unpacking that uh, very dangerous word, Elizabeth. What exactly is federalism? Thank you, Nick and Wendy and Faith and the um, George Consortium for having us. Um, My job here at the beginning of the broadcast is just to talk briefly in sort of con law one, structural con law terms about federalism. So we start from the notion of supremacy. Um, We know perhaps from Schoolhouse Rock or other sources that federal law (coughs) is supreme over state law. So for example, current Supreme Court precedent says that abortion is legal. States cannot enact laws making abortion illegal. When the individual mandate was in effect under the ACA, states could not enact laws prohibiting individual mandates. That's basic supremacy law. Supremacy has varying effects. Um, under a doctrine called preemption, which I think may be addressed in a later briefing, but just briefly for our purposes. For example, this notion of supremacy means that sometimes states are totally disallowed from enacting laws that address the same concerns that federal laws have addressed. Sometimes that means that states can enact corollaries to the federal law as long as they don't conflict with the federal law. And sometimes that means that the federal law is a floor above which states may regulate. So, for example, the federal law may set minimum safety requirements for the workplace or for childcare centers, but states would be free to enact more protective laws for those settings or more, more strict requirements. So, within that, federal law being supreme, federal law also is limited. It's limited to the powers enumerated in the Constitution to the federal government. And some of those are quite familiar the power to tax and spend, the power to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the states. So the power to establish post offices are among the enumerated powers under the Constitution. The way the divide of power operates then structurally is any powers not enumerated in the Constitution are reserved by the Tenth Amendment to the states. So the Tenth Amendment's reserved powers, sometimes called the police powers, although we don't mean in the cops and robbers sense, but that addresses anything from health and safety and welfare. Those are core Tenth Amendment powers that traditionally lie in the hands of 
states. Those powers are broad and states um, regulate quite um, generously in that space unless the state law violates another law, including individual constitutional rights. And I'll turn it over to Wendy to talk more particularly about public health federalism. Thanks so much, Elizabeth, and thank you for Nick and, and Faith and everyone helping to put this on. So discussions of public health federalism or the allocation of federal and state power with respect to public health usually begin where Elizabeth led off with the idea that the public health is a core component of the state's police power, the inherent powers of sovereignty that the states continue to retain when they join the Constitution. And indeed, back as far back as 1824 in Gibbons versus Ogden, Chief Justice Marshall cited quarantine laws and health laws of every kind as prime examples of the police power. Much has changed since then, but even in contemporary cases, the Supreme Court continues to point to health laws as falling within the traditional purview of the state's police powers. Despite that, it's important to note that as far back as 1790, the federal government has used some of its enumerated powers as Elizabeth discussed, to enact health laws. And today, of course, the federal government plays a central role using those enumerated powers, particularly its powers over commerce and taxing and spending, to regulate in the area of public health. For example, the federal government uses the commerce power to regulate pharmaceuticals through the Food and Drug Act, and it uses this tax and spending power to establish Medicare and to really regulate widely the healthcare system through those powers. The federal government also uses its control of international commerce and its power over immigration to impose international quarantine. So today, public health federalism is really marked by overlapping powers and authority. Finally, I think it's worth noting that public health protection, especially from infectious disease, really played an outside role in the development of constitutional federalism. And many of our early cases, many of the cases in the 19th century and through the early 20th century developed around where states claimed they were acting on behalf of public health and that was contested. And much of the court's early jurisprudence about so-called horizontal federalism, the relationship between the states, dealt with public health. And while the various doctrinal approaches that the courts have used has changed over the decades, the one constant has been the court's recognition that public health is an important government function. So I guess one of the difficulties when we look at the the national scene at the moment um, is we have this sort of sharp divide uh, between uh, some states that have shelter in place, stay at home orders, and other states that seem to be sort of more laissez-faire, or we have uh, some states that have very different kind of exceptions to essential services, you know, such in Georgia, apparently the beaches uh, are essential. I know Elizabeth can't wait to to finish this and and, and get there. Um, Could the federal government impose a nationwide stay at home order, Elizabeth? Or, you know, if we want to look maybe a month or two into the future, could the federal, when, when the economy maybe wants to start again, could the federal government bar the states from having stay at home orders? Great question. Yes. And um, I'm here in Georgia where we have several interesting examples of this particular policy issue. We have an exception, as Nick mentioned, 
for beaches. Although as an example of, if we're talking about federalism, there's a further layer of this in terms of localism. And one example of that is that um, the city of Tybee Island in Georgia, the mayor and council of that city um, made a public statement on their website, essentially objecting to the reopening of beaches. This is a, a tourist town, a beach community in Georgia. So that's an example of localism. Um, um, but to your question, um, could the federal government impose a nationwide stay at home order? So again, we've seen city and uh, county orders. We've seen state level orders. Could the federal government impose such an order? Well, there's certainly been several calls for that, including by Dr. Fauci. There was a letter from 20 House Democrats calling for such an order, um, something beyond the current federal 30-day shelter-in-place guidelines, a true order with the um, power and effective law. And I think legal scholars will differ on the answer to this, even Wendy and I in talking offline this morning differ somewhat. Um, to me, I think it's legally questionable, and I'll explain a little bit about why. As I noted in the, the primer above, the federal powers are enumerated. Um, the power that seems most applicable to this question is the power to regulate commerce and perhaps the taxing and spending power, which I'll talk about in a minute. So the federal government has power to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the states. So a nationwide shelter in place order presents two problems to my mind, under the interstate commerce um, laws. One is that ordering individuals and families to stay in their homes arguably is purely intrastate. Um, it regulates what people do within a state's borders, indeed within their own neighborhoods and homes. A second problem is that ordering people to stay in their homes arguably is not ordering them, is does not involve them in commerce. Um, again, the interstate commerce clause has to do with um, participating in the market and simply being told to stay home. Um, does not require you to participate in the market. However, it certainly affects the market quite substantially by limiting purchasing, limiting your engagement, at least within local commerce. And I think um, one could make an argument um, extending from that, that there is a substantial effect on interstate. But to me, the, the arguments more strongly the other way. There's some precedent on this question, which I think is relevant. One is an old case from 1942, Wickard versus Spilburn, which those of you who followed the NFIB versus Sebelius um, case case of 2012 will recognize, if not from your comm law studies, and that case concerned similar to the question of ordering people to stay in their own homes, an individual who simply wanted to grow wheat on his own property for his own use. And the court, um, in considering the legality of a federal law that regulated the, the production, the output of wheat as a way to stabilize prices, held that that law was constitutional and that even this homegrown wheat um, practice substantially affected interstate commerce because it had the effect of increasing production and thereby undermining the, the intended price controls. On the other hand, there's more recent federal precedent, the Morrison case from 1994 and the Lopez case from 1995, which suggests that purely or seemingly local activities do not bear an, an, an a, um, effect on, the, on, on commerce to the same degree. The Morrison case involved a federal law, the Violence Against Women's Act. Lopez involved a federal law prohibiting guns within a certain distance of school zones. And the court held in both cases that those laws were not sufficiently related to commerce or to economic effects, um, or that the economic effects were too attenuated. Um, and I think you could make perhaps a similar argument here. Likewise, again, to move to the, the NFIB versus Sebelius case in 2012, the court there held that an individual's decision not to purchase health insurance 
wasn't commerce. I wasn't engaging in commerce, much as I suggested simply staying home is not engaging in commerce. And that taxing an individual for the decision not to um, purchase health insurance was akin to regulating inactivity. That was the key to the court's analysis there. Um, So, and again, here, telling people to stay home essentially is telling them not to engage in. So, again, Wendy can jump in and has other, may have other thoughts on the Commerce Clause analysis, but let me first consider a different enumerated power, that is the federal spending power. Another possibility is that perhaps the federal government, rather than um, issuing a nationwide stay-at-home order without any um, uh, window dressing, could make that, that order contingent on some other benefit or funding um, to states. Returning to our point about supremacy, the federal government cannot simply command states to implement federal laws. They can commandeer state officials to force federal laws. But the way around that is that is what's called the conditional spending power. And that through that, the federal government can offer carrots in terms of funding or sticks possibly in terms of preemption of state authority, if states fail to enact federal laws. And so Wendy's nightmare scenario on this is suppose the federal government conditioned the allocation of very scarce resource of ventilators to states relaxing their states. Which moves us to the next question that we pose, the flip side, could the federal government deciding to reopen the economy, to reopen costs, bar states from keeping their state law-based stay-at-homes. And again, I'm somewhat doubtful that that seems well within the 10th Amendment Reserve powers that I spoke earlier, even though those sorts of orders certainly are restricted with individual movement and other constitutional rights and process. However, the legal precedent, some of which Wendy mentioned earlier, suggests that states under those two amendment powers can impose on individual rights if they have a good reason for doing so, and if their way of doing it is rationally related to that that And given our understanding of how COVID-19 is transmitted and the lack of a less restrictive alternative, such as universal testing, I think that those stay-in-place orders or stay-at-home orders likely would be a base constitutional challenge, particularly in as much as they typically include allowances for essential workers and essential services. There's some variety among states as far as what counts as essential workers and how those have been, um, those carve-outs have been included. Again, here in Georgia, we have the beaches issue, we have the churches issues, and we also have an issue um, with respect to gun shops. So there was actually a constitutional challenge brought by a gun shop owner here in Athens, Georgia, where I am, arguing that gun shops are essential businesses and that it is unconstitutional to not allow them to continue operating. Essentially, the argument was that that, um, that we all now under this pandemic are first responders and, and need to be able to arm ourselves. Well, just yesterday, the U.S. District Court here in the Northern District um, threw out that amendment. But I guess my point is, is that there could be discrete challenges to stay-at-home orders on due process, First Amendment, um, or other grounds. But I think that's a different question from the one that Nick posed about whether the federal government could broadly bar state or local stay-at-home orders. So, Wendy, um, another issue that obviously has arisen has been quarantine, um, 
particularly along state borders. We had the president a couple of weeks ago suggesting he could um, uh, draw a line around the northeast and protect the rest of the country. Governor Cuomo, I think, pushed back saying that would be a declaration of war. Um, We also have some smaller states in the northeast actually sort of trying to uh, bar New Yorkers um, traveling there. We have an effective border um, being enforced between Louisiana and Texas. So both with regard to the federal government and also between the states, what kind of constitutional law issues and answers uh, can you uh, can you provide? Well, thanks, Nick. Um, this is one of the more troubling features, I think, of our present, at least constitutional moment is, you know, our union was set up to be a nation. Um, states are very important, but one of the key things that the framers wanted was not each state fighting with each other. And what we're seeing right now is we're seeing sort of that each 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 state for its own. You ask about the federal government. The federal government is the authority that has the power to impose interstate quarantines. Obviously, these are subject to statutory and due process issues, but I think we're not really focusing on the many important due process issues. But if there are to be quarantines across state lines, I mean, to some extent, that really is federal government that can prevent the interstate movement of goods. The, The states going after each other Um, I think raise numerous constitutional questions. There are problems under the so-called Dormant Commerce Clause, although it's worth noting that there has long been a so-called quarantine exception. And states have historically, and in the 19th century, frequently did discriminate against out-of-staters and more often even out-of-state goods under the so-called quarantine exception. Um, These kinds of laws um, and actions by states also raise issues about the right to travel and the privileges and immunities clause. What I think, you know, because of time, I don't want to go in too deep into the weeds, but what I think is important to recognize is there is really no justification as a public health matter and therefore probably as a constitutional matter for setting up these barriers based on residency or license, right? So, you know, what's really troubling, for example, is where states are saying, you can come in from New York if you're a Rhode Islander, but you can't come in, we're stopping cars with Rhode Island with New York lines. Like, the virus does not attach based on the license plate. And that seems to me to be sort of a real a violation of the spirit, if not the letter, of privileges and immunity, because we're sort of giving different epidemiological status based on state residency, rather than saying, you know, anybody traveling from out of state probably should be in a two-week um, stay-at-home, you know, order, right? So where we're getting this kind of discrimination based on state status, I think that is really uh, violative of the spirit of the whole idea of union. Although, again, we need to recognize that many of our federalism principles, the courts have always recognized public health exceptions. And I think, you know, I think we need to be careful about saying what a court would do in this moment of emergency. But it's hard to understand the discrimination based on residency as opposed to exposure to the virus. 
So um, the uh, time is pressing and we need to let uh, the Twitter world get back to watching Breaking Bad all over again. But there was a KFF tracking poll released today that uh, 60% of the people surveyed said that the federal government should be primarily responsible for the coronavirus response, almost double um, the number that said that their own state should be. So uh, very quickly, how would you sort of sum up how you think federalism has influenced positively or negatively uh, the response to uh, this pandemic? Let's start with you, Elizabeth, and then to Wendy. Thanks, Nick. Um, Great question. I think, you know, we are in a space with a public health pandemic that does not know state borders, as Wendy suggested. It doesn't recognize license plates. Um, It's the quintessential public health problem that cannot be resolved by individuals. It requires government centralized public action. It also requires action across borders. This is not um, a natural disaster that affects one or a few states. It's a disaster that is affecting our entire country. And so the values that we typically promote when we think about federalism and about um, expansion or protection of states' rights in terms of experimentation and having uh, lawmakers who are closer to their constituents just seem less relevant to me in the current situation. Um, certainly, we've seen some states that have been um, have been entrepreneurs and leaders in addressing the pandemic by enacting uh, stricter stay-at-home orders and other um, responses. But I think at this point, we need coordinated, centralized um, response to the situation. Wendy? I think I have a slightly different view, although I share most of the concerns. I think when historians look back at this period, they're going to see um, the the strengths and weaknesses of our federalism, as Justice O'Connor used to call it. And it's easy to see the bad. Um, As Elizabeth said, you know, viruses don't respect state lines. We have a patchwork of approaches that um, is very problematic. And importantly and critically, I think issues of, you know, not so much stay-at-home orders, but supply chain, the allocation of needed goods, these are things that can only be done by a central federal government, right? The idea that states are competing against each other and jacking up the price of, you know, PPE is just um, really sad and tragic. But I do think we also need to see the way that our federalism has worked. Um, As Elizabeth said, some states have innovated and they have been ahead of the federal government. And I don't, I can't imagine, for example, what the situation might be on the West Coast right now if the governors of Washington and California had not jumped way ahead of the federal government and, you know, shut down schools and issued stay-at-home orders weeks before the federal government was going in that direction. And those states seem to have, at least for now, flattened the curve. And many lives may have been saved. So waiting for the federal government, and if we had a centralized authority where local leaders had to wait for the federal government, um, that might have been tragic. Likewise, local governments are are different sources of authority and legitimacy. And I think about the ways, you know, in China, and again, we don't have all the information, but local authorities were afraid, perhaps, to come out and to be outspoken and to share what was going on. And I think I am grateful in this moment that we have governors who are willing to talk about what's going on in their states and, again, force the federal government's attention. And finally, and again, this doesn't go so much to the question of allocation, but the stay-at-home type of orders, I think we need to think about the issues of legitimacy. We are in a moment not only of a pandemic, but we are in a moment of a political crisis in this country. There is tremendous lack of trust, really from both sides of the aisle, of Washington and the federal government. And it's easy to say that only a national government can, you 
you know, do the coordination. But what would the response be in this country if there had been a stay-at-home order three weeks ago from the federal government? I think that is that a lot of people are acceding to and complying with these orders, albeit reluctantly, um, because they trust their local mayors and their local governors probably more than they trust Houston, Washington. And legitimacy is important in this moment, and trust is important. That said, you know, as I said, the economic crisis that we're facing, only the federal government can respond to that, and the equipment and flight chain problems. So seeing that their states continue to play an important role and may have had an important role in this um, and may be ahead of the curve is not to say that we don't need federal action, because we surely do. Well, thank you to Professors Pummet and we. And to you all for watching, we'll be broadcasting here on Twitter at noon Eastern time every Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday. Just go to at P-H-L-A-W-W-A-T-C-H or search for hashtag COVID law briefing. Show notes are at the publichealthlawwatch.org website and the shows are archived by the Week in Health Law podcast at www.twill.com. The COVID-19 law and policy briefing are produced by Faith Cullick and Bethany Saxon. We'll see you next time. Please stay safe.